You know, there are a lot of companies in the last 30 years that chose to ignore it. And many of them I've bankrupted. <laughs> Everybody's got to eat. And nobody likes getting sick. That's why Heroes toil in the shadows, keeping your food safe at all points, from the supply chain to the point of sale. Join industry veterans Francine L. Shaw and Matt Ragusi for a deep dive into food safety. It all boils down to one golden rule. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. Today, we are both honored and humbled to be sitting down with one of the most respected, feared, and influential leaders of our time, an individual who's dedicated over 25 years to revolutionizing food safety. Please join me in welcoming our esteemed guest, Bill Marler. Bill Marler is a household name when it comes to food safety, advocacy, and a trusted voice in the field. As the most prominent foodborne illness attorney in America, he has relentlessly fought for justice for countless individuals affected by foodborne illnesses. His expertise and in-depth knowledge have made him a major force in food policy, not only in the United States, but around the world. His relentless pursuit of accountability for victims of foodborne illnesses has led to landmark cases and groundbreaking legal precedents. As an advocate for food safety, Bill Marler has tirelessly worked with individuals, organizations, and governments to raise awareness about potential dangers lurking in our food supply. Today, we have the opportunity to delve deep into Bill Marler's extensive experience and gain insights into the challenges faced by the food industry. We'll explore some of his proudest moments, the ongoing battle for improved food safety, and his vision for a future where safe food is a fundamental right for all. So without further ado, let's welcome Bill Marler to the Don't Eat Poop podcast. Hey, you know, I've gotten to see some of your podcasts and I think they're great uh, and I'm honored to be here. So, yeah. Well, why don't we start with, um, we just posted on on LinkedIn about your experience. Francine and I are both wearing the Get the F Out of the FDA shirts. And before we launch into other questions, I'd love to know kind of like, what made you decide to do that campaign where you're sending hundreds, if not thousands of shirts to Congress and every place else? And how much do you think that that affected this process? And what are you seeing right now in terms of if it's actually working? And because I just posted this this thing that you, you think it is, it is actually working. Yeah. But before you answer that question, I want to say that morning that Matt saw that, he saw that post and right away he he sent that to me. He's like, oh my God, did you see what Bill Marler posted this morning? <laughs> <laughs> because it's really exciting news. And it was like, you're like, oh my God, this is great. Well, I kind of give you a, sort of the, the big picture. So I certainly understand the difficult position that regulators, whether they're at FDA, FSIS, state and local health authorities, CDC. I understand how difficult their jobs in in a political regulatory environment is, and I get it. And I have been a huge supporter over the last 30 years of, you know, regulators. You know, I've spoken at, you know, conferences, large and small, um, you know, how to avoid getting sued, regulators getting sued. I mean, I, I feel like I've sort of earned the ability to at least give them constructive criticism. And so when the infant formula crisis hit and we started learning about how bad the Abbott plant was, uh, the whistleblower information, and then really then that rolled into uh, the lack of infant formula on the shelves, all of those things you could kind of look at and go, 
had the FDA really been invested more in the food side of FDA? Had they, you know, thought about, well, what's going to happen if we aren't in those plants all the time, making sure that product is safe? Learning that Coronabacter Sakazaki was only reportable in one or perhaps two states, you know, in a bacteria that has a 50% kill rate. And, you know, just sort of all of those things got to me to a point where, sure, we've talked about having one single food safety agency or having, you know, it rearranged, but it just got to the point where I just felt like the FDA needed like a kind of a whack upside the head. And I was convinced by that when I was asked to testify before the Reagan-Udall committee that Dr. Califf, you know, had set up to sort of ask the question, you know, what should we do with the F in the FDA? And I think I might have been the only speaker who was there for the entire time. You know, there were panels or six panels of five people each. And me excluded, everybody there was super qualified, lots of experience. Uniformly, uniformly, the message to that group was you need to have someone in charge of the food side of the FDA that's got the power and accountability to deal with stuff. Yeah. And, you know, that both the human food, uh, animal food, you know, inspection, SIFSAN, all of them needed to sort of be reconstituted under someone who is accountable. So, again, I, you know, I could talk for a long time, but, you know, we probably, the three of us probably know more about the FDA than most humans on the planet. Right. If someone asked you, who was, account- who should be held accountable for the infant formula problem? And I don't know if I could really say who that should be. Right. That's because of how the food side of the FDA is designed. So so once that kind of, you know, I think unanimity of opinion about we needed to do that, you know, got in my brain. And then to have Dr. Califf essentially say, yeah, we're not going to do that. That was the beginning of what am I going to do about this? And so right. I started thinking about getting, it was, first of all, I started getting the food into FDA was sort of the thought process. And then it was, you know, I started talking to a lot of people inside and outside the Beltway. And we then came up with like this ad campaign of get the F out of the FDA. Um, and can, you, can you say the whole phrase? Because uh, I, I <laughs> get the F out of the FDA. Because the to- people at the top are on drugs, right? Yeah, we came up with that. One. <laughs> that was that one wasn't directly my idea, um, uh, and was one of the ones that we were thinking of maybe not doing. But I liked it so much that between this T-shirt and the ads that I ran in all of the newspapers on the Hill, so that, that Congress members would send. So then it was like, okay, what do I do with this idea, this T-shirt? So originally, way back when, you know, during the Food Safety Modernization Act, there was some issues about getting that passed. And it was right around Thanksgiving. And I made T-shirts that you might be able to find somewhere that had a picture of me with a red X through it. 
And on the back, it said, put a trial lawyer out of business, pass food safety legislation by Thanksgiving. And I got a hundred of those t-shirts made and hand delivered them to senators in that lame duck session, which they finally did pass FISMA. And I can get into the details on that. But that, that was the genesis of this. So then, frankly, what we did was we made enough T-shirts to give to every Congress member on the House side and every senator. And I flew my kids. I have three daughters. I flew my daughters in, and they're the ones that hand-delivered them to everybody. And then I started giving them out online for free. Yeah. And we've produced about... 1500 t-shirts. <laughs> so, so they're, they're popping up everywhere. So anyway, that's my long story. The whole concept, frankly, is not to piss off Dr. Kayla for to besmirch the FDA. I mean, I get it. It's a tough job, mm-hmm. but you know, we've got to the point where, you know, when I was at AFTO, you know, and there's somebody's going to be mad about this, but I was going to send them T-shirts. In fact, I did. And then they said, thanks, but no thanks. And they sent them back to me. And I think they're somewhere in Nebraska. And But, you know, there was a smattering of the T-shirts in the audience. And when I was asked about this whole thing and what I think should happen, that there should be a separation within FDA of food, nutrition, and drugs and medical devices... It wasn't quite a standing ovation, but it was awful damn close. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I mean, I think those people in the know realized that, you know, the food side of the FDA is so important. Yeah. And, and what those, the people's jobs are so important, but we, we need to have both the power and the authority and the accountability uh, of someone in that position to make this thing work. So that's my long story. I apologize for making it so long, but we'll see. I'll probably keep printing shirts until someone has me arrested. So. <laughs> and, where, and where should people email? Since you, you obviously have a box coming to you, so you have plenty of inventory. Where should people email to get those? Shoot me an email, bmarler at marlerclark.com. And make sure I got in a conversation with somebody. They said, well, I'd like a shirt. And I go, well, I need your mailing address. And they said, well, you got my email address. And I'm like, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I have not figured out how to do that. <laughs> Maybe there's a way to, I just don't know how that works. And so I went round and round with them and they were like, Oh yeah, you're right. Indeed, yeah, my, so, <laughs> and didn't you, did you like the the packaging that it came in? One hundred percent. So much so that I didn't want to take my shirt out shirt out of it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, I, know. I sent you I sent you the email of me actually taking a picture in the shirt holding the, the yeah. packaging. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I think my own personal opinion is that more people agree with you than are willing to admit. You know, these kinds of restructuring things are not, you know, easy. And I would, I think that that's probably a lot of what's going on here. It's like, oh my God, the head of SIFSAN is not going to want to work with the head of ORA, is not going to want to, you know, give up their, you know, direct line authority to the commissioner. But if you look at the Reagan Udall Foundation recommendations, 
they gave a number of recommendations, not necessarily in ranked order, but the first recommendation was what I suggested, which was having a commissioner of food and nutrition and having a commissioner of drugs and medical devices and then rearranging th- you know rearranging the centers accordingly. But both of those individuals being direct reports to the HHS secretary and be Senate confirmed. And essentially, that is how the USDA is structured. That's how, like Emilio Esteban at FSIS, I mean, I may never not agree with FSIS uh, on things. And, uh, you know, I've been having a sort of a pitch battle with them on salmonella for 20 years. That's the chicken one. Yeah. And I have a T-shirt for that, too. <laughs> Get the... Uh, out of out of out of uh, chicken, right? <laughs> yeah, but but you know, at least I you know who's responsible for making the decision or not making the decision, and I think that's that's good for the public. It's good for congressional oversight. You know, it's good for the administration to have that accountability, so you know who's making the decisions. Yeah. I agree. It takes more guts to make waves than it does to stay status quo. And many times people are more comfortable staying in their in their lane comfort zone. But but I'm you know, I, I'm I'm super excited that it's not exactly what I would want, but I'm super excited about what Congress has directed, uh the House Appropriations Committee has directed FDA to essentially restructure the food side of the FDA into a format that's not exactly the way I would do it, but hell, no one ever asks my opinion anyway. So, um, (laughs) but I mean, do I think it's, it's essentially what Mike Taylor has argued for, uh, you know, Steve Ostroff has argued for, um, you know, uh, Frank Giannis has argued for, I think it at least is an interim step, you know, and I wholly support whatever staff member slid that in in the Appropriations Committee report and uh, recommendations. But I'm not sure that Dr. Califf can ignore that. Yeah, it's a step, and I know that we were thrilled when we saw that step being taken. And and I was just listening to a, a, a. Frank Guinness was was in a different podcast and he was talking about the difference between his role versus Mike Taylor's role even. And Mike Taylor had all of the FDA side of food safety reporting up to him where where Frank Guinness only had two branches. And so it was almost like a ticking time bomb that something like the formula thing would actually happen. I agree. Given that he didn't have the same response time. I mean, he even says that like, uh, this ended up in somebody else's email box four months before I was even aware of it, given the way it's structured. And here we are trying to hold them accountable. Congress is trying to hold somebody accountable, and there's nobody to hold accountable. Yeah, it's it was the mail room. <laughs> you know? yeah, literally, that's what they said. You're, I mean, that's a joke, and it's not even a joke in the FDA. No. That was literally what they wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's you know, you know, it's not like we want to look for someone to blame for things. We just want to give these highly qualified, good people who are serving the public 
give them the tools to do their jobs correctly. I mean, look, I've been at this for 30 years. The numbers of Americans who are sickened by food hasn't changed at all. Yeah. And in yeah. some respects, Salmonella and Campylobacter, they've gotten worse. I mean, the mix of the vector, uh, you know, that make people sick from 0157 has shifted from red meat to, you know, leafy greens. That's done. But the, the sheer numbers of the people getting sick and dying and being hospitalized and the billions of dollars if, that it wastes in this country on, you know, medical expenses, lost wages and my specialty lawsuits, you know, it's it's ridiculous. And I think we can do better. We can't we have to do better. Yeah. So speaking of the general public, what advice would you give to consumers to help them minimize their risk of contracting foodborne illnesses and what precautions should they take when eating out or purchasing food? So, you know, I get asked that question a lot and I, I always tell this funny story. It probably a decade ago, or maybe even longer ago, I got interviewed by a reporter uh, from the Guardian newspaper in, in the UK. And they were asking me about this. And, the, and, you know, one of the things they asked at the end is like, God, what do you, what do you eat? <laughs> it's probably better to think about what I don't eat, you know? And, and so I, I gave him a list of like the six things Bill Marler doesn't eat. And Figured that was that. And then one of my daughters a couple of days later goes, oh, my dad, you've gone viral. I'm like, what? <laughs> and apparently the sixth thing Bill Marler doesn't eat has just been circumnavigating the world last decade or so. But, you know, to, to answer your question, you know, directly from my experience of watching 30 years of this, where the problems are, one of the things you have to remember is, is that about 80%, 85% of all foodborne illnesses are never attributed to anything. They never figure out right. what the hell it was that made someone sick. So you have to put that away. But if you look at the ones where there has been attribution, it fits pretty well in my six things that I don't need. <laughs> now, unpasteurized juices and unpasteurized milk, sprouts. Sprouts are just one of those things that, to borrow from uh, Ralph Nader, sprouts are just unsafe at any speed, in my view. <laughs> I, I saw that article where you were like, sprouts needs a warning label. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I made a warning label up for sprouts, but it's kind of hard to put them on the little seeds. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, sprouts. we're talking about sprouts the food, not sprouts yeah. the grocery store. <laughs> And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, undercooked meat, you know, I think, you, you know, you pay you should be paying attention to how meat is cooked per the USDA, you know, 155 internal temperature for hamburgers, 165 yeah. for chicken, you know, one, I, I think I've lost track of the pork one, but I think it's 140 or 145. 145 yeah. So that is something that consumers do. You know, raw oysters. Now, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and that's like, that's like, I don't know, burping in church. You know, it's sort <laughs> of like not done. But again, I've seen the other side of that. Sushi, really pretty like low risk, but we had a hepatitis A outbreak linked to sushi in Hawaii that killed people. Yeah. It, it was a horrible outbreak. And so 
we, we do know that that happens. And I think probably the most controversial thing that I say that, are, you know, people should avoid is mass produced, chopped, bagged salads. And I know they're convenient. Yeah. And I know that a lot of major producers produce this stuff, but all the outbreaks or nearly all the outbreaks that I've been involved in in the last 15 years where it comes to E. coli cases, it's triple washed, chopped bag salad that people go to the grocery store and grab. Or raw milk. Yeah. Yeah. Raw milk. And, you know, and, and God knows Iowa just, we'd been fighting for a decade against raw milk in Iowa and they passed it this year. And so, but I mean, all that that's going to do is give me more work, which <laughs> you know, people hate lawyers so much. They should figure out a way to like the beef industry in the beef industry. In 2002, um, I wrote this op-ed to said, like, if you hate trial lawyers, fix the E. coli and hamburger problem. From 1993 to 2002, 2003, that decade after Mike Taylor deemed uh, 0157 an adulterant, it took a while for the system to operate and to change behavior. But, you know, that was almost all what I did was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. And that's zero now. It's zero. I don't have E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Yeah. I have E. coli cases linked to chopped, triple washed romaine lettuce. Uh, you know, that keeps me very busy. Yeah. And they can't find it. Like half these outbreaks, they're not finding exactly where it came from, which will, which will be interesting with the new FDA's FISMA rule, you know, the blueprint of um, <clears throat> of food safety that Frank Yenis had his like parting gift to the world right. of the United States. That traceability, I think, hopefully will help, you know, like actually speed up and FDA actually getting, figuring out where this is coming from. But, you know, one of the things that, the FDA did with respect to leafy greens is there was an, um, after an outbreak in California, it was probably like the third or fourth, you know, outbreak. And I think it was 2019, 2020. They did tell the industry that environmental contamination of leafy greens was uh, a hazard likely to occur. Yeah. And, and that language, that has meaning. And I think it's because, yeah, we don't necessarily in these cases like the 2018 Romaine outbreak in Yuma, you know, they found 0157H7 genetic match to the 240 people that got sick, five people died. You know, they found the genetic match in the Welton Canal. Yeah. But they, where did it come from? Well, I don't know. There was a, you know, 100,000 cow CAFO, like within a stone's throw of that. Shepherds actually let their sheep drink from the canal. But, you know, FDA was disallowed to go onto the farm. And you'll notice that there's a bill that has just been introduced by Rosa Delora in the last couple of days that would allow FDA to go on to neighboring farms to, you know, do investigations. And so, I mean, I think more information is better information. And, you know, being able to understand especially environmental contamination and the impact on products that don't have a kill step is critical to, I think, preventing and bending this foodborne illness curve. Yeah. What do you see for your, for your business moving forward? Do you see 
with um, some of this new stuff that's coming on with regulation and more with industry kind of moving towards like food safety culture, do you see your business decreasing or do you see your business increasing over the next 20 years? Well, by the way, an increase of your business is not good for consumers either right. <laughs> or right. the industry, really. Really, it's not good. Yeah, the only person who likes that is my accountant. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's kind of a hard question to answer because, like, if you said, hey, how's, how are Leafy Greens doing today? You'd go, well, there wasn't a major outbreak in the spring of this year where you would have expected one. Right. That's a good thing. Presuming that there wasn't a, an outbreak or maybe because candidly, there are a lot of times where there are outbreaks that occur that the public is never made aware of. Right. Where the FDA and CDC both know that there was an outbreak and then they did not publicize that information. That happens. It happens fairly frequently and sometimes I stumble on them because some poor person got sick. I start to investigate and realize that, you know, they were part of a cluster of 30, 40, 50 people, all whole genome sequence matched, linked to, you know, a particular product, and off I go to the races. So wait, wait, hold on, hold on one second. You find the information that a cluster of twenty to forty people have a epidemiology match of a product, as well as a genetic match of a product, and the CDC and the FDA don't actually announce this. Yeah, it happens all the time. Wow, I didn't know that, Francine. Did you know that? Have you ever heard of that? Wow. So what do you do then when that happens? I usually put it on my blog and then I usually get some angry email from somebody in the <laughs> regulatory agency. Which so, is how I know because I read his blog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, there was there was one kind of a famous one uh, several years ago. It was a, a, a young girl who developed hemolytic uremic syndrome after eating a Caesar salad at a restaurant. She was sick three days later. You know, all of the kind of the, the things lined up, but she was appear- apparently an isolated case. So I do my due diligence. I mean, I have, I'm probably the only law firm in the country that has an epidemiologist on staff. <laughs> and so, you know, my epidemiologist and I, you know, start our investigation and, you know, we, you know, got the local health department records, the local environmental records, and then sent a FOIA to the state. And we started getting records. And it was like you had to read between the lines and the redactions, but all of a sudden it looked like there was more people sick than her, but they were in other states. And so then I started foying records from other states, redacted, so I'm not getting the names of other sick people. That would be inappropriate. But all of a sudden I realized that it was a 10-state, 30-person outbreak, all with the same whole genome sequence all aiding romaine lettuce, and the romaine lettuce all came from the same supplier. But the FDA, despite being told by epidemiologists from a variety of states, we need to make this public, despite having the CDC actually already in emails, 
you know how they have on their sites, they, like the map and like the list of information yeah. and stuff. They actually had that all drafted up. But the FDA said, eh, you know, the product's off the market, no reason to alert the public. You know, there's no actionable thing that the public can do. So we're just not going to say anything. Huh. So does that piss you off when that happens? Piss me off? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's I, I look at it this way. The, the pushback I get is, well, Bill, you want us to make this public so you can sue people. Well, I figure this stuff out myself, and I still sued the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't make that much difference to me. But, you know, from a think about it from a consumer's perspective. Think about it from a, a legislative perspective. If you're not telling the public there's this ongoing problem, you as, the public assumes that there's not a problem. Right. Which is my point. Yeah. And so I look at it like in order to make substantive changes, people need to be informed. And whether that's they stop eating romaine lettuce and that maybe starts to drive romaine lettuce people to do a better job, I think that's a good thing. Or policymakers to tweak rules and say, you know, hey, it's been 12 years. We still don't have what I think is an adequate water rule. Let's get this damn thing done. You know, without having people understand that and to sort of hide behind we don't need to tell people because the, you know, the stuff is off the shelves, I think is just not helpful. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. I see I see why they do that. I, I understand I understand the why of doing it. It's like why freak people out when really the product is off the shelf. But I also understand that's that's really not their job. The FDA works for the people. And yeah. um, um, really, it's 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 not the it's not the industry. USDA works for the industry. The FDA does not work for the industry. And that's where I think, like, uh, like I wish they actually would FSIS would also be underneath the FDA, um, as, because USDA is a conflict right. between helping farmers and then also regulating farmers. You know, it's like what arm wins? Well, the one that makes the most money is the one that helps the farmers. That's for sure. That's where the major vast majority of their budget is. And the food safety side is kind of the same thing. It's like. Uh, what do you do, right? I, if, if that was all under the FDA, which is really there to protect the consumers, right? I, I think that that's what they need to focus on, right? Yeah. Now I'll, I'll give you one more, uh, and you can find this still on the CDC website. Uh, you know how they have their list of outbreaks that they publish. Uh, I think it was, I think it was two thousand six, seven. You know, it's starting to blur in time. Like like when the spinach outbreak happened, that big one. No, 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 no. It was it was. I think it was the same year, or might have been the year later. But on their website, they have salmonella outbreak. It was a salmonella outbreak, and a salmonella outbreak linked to nationwide fast food Mexican restaurant A. And you're like, really, really? And so what I did was, you know, I saw the three states that. The outbreak was in. Didn't take me that long to figure out which major chains had restaurants in all three states. There were three. And then I picked up the phone and called corporate counsel for each one of them and said, are you guys having an outbreak? No. Are you got an outbreak? No. 
are you guys having an outbreak? Oh, well, not, we're not talking to Click. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so. so so just the response, you're like, oh, well, it's number three. Yeah, yeah, door number three. And anyway, but, you know, I, and again, you know, I also from a point of view of, of, you know, point of view of we want the public to have faith in our regulators, you know? Yeah. If, so when they say, don't eat this, cook that, get a vaccine, that people go, hey, these guys have my best interest at heart. Ah, I'm going to do this. The kind of things like where the public's going, why in the heck wouldn't they say that it was Taco Bell? What's the deal there? Or why did they not announce a 30-person romaine outbreak, you know, that, you know, put three kids into hemolytic uremic syndrome? Why didn't they right. do that? And I just think that it it harms it harms people, it harms institutions that I have a lot of respect for. And it that drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me nuts. So anyway. Right. Which takes me to another point. These businesses um, have a responsibility to ensure safety of their products and to protect public health. That's their responsibility, bottom line. But they also have a responsibility to their shareholders to be profitable. How do they balance that? Culture. This is where my frenemy, Frank, Giannis, and I... <laughs> <laughs> We're on the same page that, you know, it's all about culture. And I, I'm a business owner. You know, I know, I know the push and pull of making a successful business can be difficult and you, just, you have to make decisions. But, you know, when it comes to food manufacturers, I always tell the story of my dear friend, Dave Thino. He and I started off on a little rocky, you know, relationship back in Jack in the Box, but we became very close friends. And when Dave had to make a tough decision on food safety, you know, he'd pull out the picture of, you know, Lauren Rudolph and say, what would Lauren have me do? And he had the ear of the people that made decisions at Jack in the Box. And I've never had an outbreak. I never had a problem linked to Jack in the Box after 1993. And so doesn't mean they're perfect, but you know, at least during Dave's tenure, they were paying attention. And I think that's where food companies have to get. They have to have that culture where people who are paying attention to food safety have the ear of the people who make those decisions. And owners of businesses and CEOs, that's their job is to make those tough decisions. But they've got to have in their heart mm -hmm. the morality of Dave Thino and you know, and they need to pay attention because, you know, there are a lot of companies in the last 30 years that chose to ignore it. And many of them I've bankrupted. <laughs> so, and many of them are responsible for horribly injured children and the deaths of people and deaths of infants. And nobody wants to be in that spot. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, the whole idea of paying attention to details, food safety, culture, and, you know, the one other point I'd make. In 30 years of doing this, being involved in every major and many minor foodborne illness outbreaks in the United States and, frankly, in, in different parts of the world, there's always something they weren't paying attention to in the weeks and months and years before the outbreak happened 
that if had they had the proper culture, had they had proper communication, they would have solved that problem before the bus careened off the cliff. Yeah, I feel sorry for some of these guys. Like, for instance, we were talking about the the Jensen brothers last last episode, yeah. and I was just like, they were just they they weren't out to hurt anybody. They were just ignorant of what what was going on. They got bad advice, and, and I was. I, I used to actually work for that company. Uh, I created Azul Primus GFS many, many moons ago yep. uh, that, that certified them and were not certified. It was just a Primus audit, not a Primus GFS audit. But they lost everything and had, went to jail for six months and they literally did not need to hurt anybody. Yeah. No, I was involved in that case. Yeah, I know you were. <laughs> I represented 33 people that died, uh, families of those people that died. But they wound up not going to jail. They they were They pled guilty. Uh, and were sentenced to home detention for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, we, I could talk for days about the problem there. But, you know, the Jensen Farms outbreak, you know, I bankrupted them. I bankrupted the middleman. And then I showed up at the door of the two largest grocery store chains in the world and said, the problem has come home to roost for you. You need to step up and pay these poor people. And, you know, and Walmart and Kroger wound up having to be responsible for this. And that's how these things can happen sometimes. So everybody from farm to fork share responsibility for these, you know, problems and, you know, have to come up with strategies to figure out ways to fix them before they blow up into a Jensen Farms or a, a, the 2018 lettuce outbreak or, you know, the ConAgra outbreak or the Chipotle outbreak or the Bluebell outbreak or, you know, I, I can go pick. on. Yeah, yeah. All, day, all day long. You, know, you, you also went after Primus, which is really interesting too. And, I, and I'd love to know where you see um, uh, as, as GFSI, Global Food Safety Initiative audits right. and testing and um, consulting and with consulting over food safety culture and all this stuff increases. And as more and more companies are relying on these expertise to help them and also be really a, a barrier of entry, a middleman. These certificates are right. kind of used as a certificate of, yes, buy from me because I'm quote unquote safe. Where do you see that now? And where do you see that in the future as, do you see it as a, as a thing for good? Do you see it as a, a, a thing for bad or a combo? What, what, right. what is it your v- vision of that? Yeah. So I always think more education you know, more focus on culture is always going to be a better thing. And auditors, testers, people who are educating should feel absolutely confident that the likelihood of them getting sued like Primus did is pretty close to zero. And part of the reason is that we all know that audits, education are all kind of snapshots in time. You're trying to help people change their behavior and show where there's problems. It's very rare. In fact, I, other than the Jensen Farm case, I can't think of another situation where an auditor or inspector was essentially, well, not even essentially, they were there <laughs> telling them what to do while the outbreak was ongoing. I mean, that's that, that. So there was this nexus in space and time that got Primus in a pickle. That doesn't happen. So I, I think, you know, to answer your question from a strictly legal perspective, auditors, inspectors, educators are not going to be held accountable 
unless like every bad star aligns simultaneously. And that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen very often. And so, you know, I see all the all the work that's being done as a positive thing. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things that you know we need to kind of come to grips with is all of those things cost someone money. And you know what you don't want to do is push all that responsibility and cost on to the producer manufacturer, the people who like who are you know at the top, the big box stores, the big retailers, the big grocery store chains, the big restaurant chains. They need to have skin in the game. They need to make sure that everyone in the chain of distribution is got some resources to pay for better audits, better education. Great points. I was sitting in a room one time. We were talking about rolling out a food safety program. A CEO was on the phone and these words were said, launching that food safety program within my corporation is going to cost me more than if somebody dies. Wow. You've never told me that story. I thought my head was going to explode. Yeah. I was dumbfounded. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but we've seen, we've seen that we've, you know, and not just in food, in the corporation of America, you know, yeah, it's got salmonella on it. Let's forge the certificates of analysis and ship the damn stuff. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, that's where I'm always heartened a bit. Uh, when I see, uh, when, or, or sometimes when I get called by the Office of Criminal Investigation of the FDA, or I get called by an attorney, a U.S. attorney, and they're saying, "Hey, can we meet with you and kind of go through your files?" And I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I do think certainly in in my tenure of doing this kind of work, we're starting to see more and more CEOs held to account, which I think is a good thing, and I think sends a pretty strong message that that kind of attitude needs to change. Yeah, I was, I talked in our previous episode, uh, I was telling uh, Francine that my my former partner, when we, when we owned WQS, which is a certification body, uh, uh, he and I really worked hard to not have one client equal more than 8% of our revenue just for that. We wanted to have the ability to fire clients without laying people off. And it's really hard if a client is more than 8% not to lay people off. But if, if they are, we could just go, uh, no, we're not going to falsify this information. I have a lot of children. I have 10 kids. I don't want to go to jail. I won't do well in jail. And what we're talking about right now, you're asking me to have an auditor falsify information. That's like four or five people yeah. in a criminal thing that you're asking to do. Do you understand that we could all go to jail? Wait, what, what, what are you talking about? No, no. I'm like letting you know that if this happens and this call were recorded – or if I email my auditor and go, hey, you know what? Based upon financial information, um, we need you to falsify this this data. Do you like Marla would go nuts over that? <laughs> I absolutely would not do well in jail, and I have no intention. We've yeah. discussed this. Yeah. Not going. <laughs> No, not going. Darren Detweiler, I think, put what we were talking about a while ago into. Um, yeah. Real clearly, real clearly about beliefs versus values. You know, when we talk, we talk about food safety. And I think that is a real good perspective. You know, companies will talk about, you know, yeah, they have a great food safety culture. 
And, you know, it's like you have you have beliefs and you have values. Right. In fact, he said that and you started crying on stage. We all witnessed it. So, yeah, I was crying. You know, this guy <laughs> didn't know sitting next to me. And it was like his sleeve was so tiny. <laughs> it's like Darren's story is phenomenal. And, yeah, was like, you no, know, he's become know. a good friend. I'm- and, you know, I've written about it. I know it. And it is like every time it just it is just. It's impactful. Yeah. But I do want to talk about, um, you know, me saying, you know, to the person like, hey, listen, if, if Marler were to see this email, he would go nuts on us. And and last episode, we talked about how the industry kind of sees you as a monster. Um, you are a really nice guy. And I know a lot of people that know you and they're like, yeah, he's a really nice guy. But the industry kind of sees you as a monster. You, you've created fear of litigation that is that is tangible. It's true. It's it's there. They see it every single day. And you have like a hundred different publications. I don't know how you sleep. It's like at least what, three, four publications that are happening every day, some sort of blog or post, either Food Safety News or Marler and Clark or what's the other one? You have Poisons or something or Food Poison Journal. Food Poison Journal. You have all these things um, and it's out there. What do you think about that in terms of that being your image and um what would you say to people that think of you as a monster? <laughs> um, you know, uh, yeah, I'll tell you I'll tell you a story. You remember, yeah, I was telling you about the outbreak that got uncovered that I uncovered where there was thirty people in ten states. Oh yeah. So I, I actually was able to do a trace back to the entity that you know made it and sued them and collected from them. And many many years later, I'm given a speech. The Western Growers Association had invited me to give a keynote speech at their event on Kauai, which I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'll do that. Yeah, right. so, <laughs> so I went over there. I flew over there, you know, and I was basically, you know, giving this talk about the success of getting E. coli out of hamburger. And, you know, the leafy green industry could learn from that. And you need to really start thinking about it broadly you know, as an environmental contamination and what you can do with your neighbors, the cattle farmers, and try to do this. And, you know, I mean, why I get invited to some of these things is because I'm not necessarily like yelling at them saying you're evil people. I'm trying to help them avoid getting sued, you know. So I finished my speech. And of course, people are asking questions. And one guy in the back of the room starts yelling at me, blankety blank, 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 you know, you know, how do you sleep at night? You at a farmer yelling at you <laughs> at a conference? Thing, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, I just said, you know, I have to tell you, and this is my answer to you about how I feel about it. I sleep really well at night. I represent people who went to a grocery store and bought a product and they ate it and it killed them. Or they went to a, you know, a restaurant and, and they got hepatitis A and their wife got hepatitis A and both of them died. I mean, they didn't, they didn't do anything other than do what we all do normally. Uh, so I feel like the kind of work that I do is honorable and I don't, I never think about it as, as something that's anything more than that, because I think people should be held accountable. Just like, you know, if I did something wrong, I ran into the back of somebody in a car or I malpractice. You know, people should be held accountable for what they do to other people. That's just, that's what makes our society sort of function. That's the rule of law. 
And so I don't feel badly about it. And I think one of the things that I have done that I think has allowed me to be a legitimate spokesperson in food safety is, is that I not only hold people to account, but I also have worked really hard to try to help people avoid me showing up to begin with, being an advocate for the Food Safety Modernization Act, being an advocate for making certain bacterias adulterants, you know, going to conferences all over the world. I mean, I've been all over the world speaking at conferences with the pitch, why it's a bad idea to poison your customers and, you (laughs) know, giving them tangible examples of videos and, you know, my law partners, I, I now have no law partners. They've all retired. They apparently, I guess they, we did okay. Yeah, did so they, <laughs> but they would always like, why are you flying around the world? Why are you going doing this? Why did you start a newspaper that you're paying for writers out of your own pocket? Why are you doing that? And you get nothing in return for it. Why are you doing that? And I'm like, because it's the right thing to do, yeah. right? It's the right thing to do. You know, it's like we need to get more information out there. So it helps, I think, folks in like your position where you're, you know, you're not looked at as the enemy. You're looked at as an educator and a friend. But I hope I'm giving you guys some tools that you can go, hey, if you don't pay attention to us, this boogeyman is going to show up with a subpoena or he's going to blog about you on his, you know, his, yeah. his website, which is then going to get picked up by the New York times, wall street journal. And then somebody's going to be up your, you know, backside. So I get it. Why people hate lawyers. You know, frankly, I hate most lawyers, <laughs> but I feel like I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to do the right thing for my clients, which is, the most important thing to do. But I'm also trying to do the right thing by helping people avoid the disasters because, you know, we don't need more Darren Detweilers and his family. We don't need more Brianne Kiners. And I can go through list after list after list after list of people who I've watched die, who I've gone to funerals, and it has an impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it has an impact on me. And what I'm trying to do is get across to other people, avoid this at all costs. Yeah. Was it reading that book Poisoned? And I'd love for you to talk about the, the screening of that too, but reading the book Poisoned, was it when you when you walked into Leanne Kreimer's room and saw how that was, did that turn you from an attorney to an advocate? You know. I think um, certainly that had a huge impact on me from a personal perspective, because, you know, I had I had a, a young daughter at the same time, you know, actually, you know, Darren and I were talking about it. Uh, his uh, his his child who died was like a month older than my daughter, who's now 31 years old, uh, nearly 32. And so, I mean, Brianne Kiner obviously had a personal impact on me. But I actually, back then, and really through the Jack in the Box case, I really felt that straight up litigation, suing companies would be enough, you know, to change their behavior. Mm. They took enough money from people that you you made their lives miserable, you know, 
uh, through depositions and all that stuff, that it would change their behavior. And I, I think by the end of Jack in the Box, Odwalla happened. I started getting more and more cases. I realized that litigation was just one tool, a very blunt instrument for change, but, you know, a useful one. But that's when I think I sort of shifted in my head that I needed to do more. Hmm. Uh, I needed to figure out a way to have 300% more time in a 100% <laughs> body. And it's been it's been a challenge. It's been, it has been a challenge. And I think that's why a lot of people who know me wonder, when does that guy ever sleep? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to be respectful of your time. But I have one more question. And then if you want to speak about oh. the documentary, I want to let you speak about the documentary. Sure. You are a very young attorney, like back in the box <laughs> case. We're not saying you're old now. No, but no, no, years no, ago, no you not at really all. Young. Not at all. <laughs> but I mean, you you were you were a young attorney. That was a big deal for you when yeah. you you won that case. What was your feeling when you won that? How did you feel? Um. <sighs> I'll tell you a story I don't, I've never told anybody. So it's about like how the case came down in the settlement. It didn't even make it in the book. I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I'll tell it to you. Um, so it, the part in the book where, you know, the we're at this mediation and I had already uncovered all these documents that were very problematic for Jack in the Box and they wanted to settle because they wanted you know, me out of the litigation. They, you know, and so, um, and we got to this point where the mediator said, look, they're only going to pay 14 million bucks. And I said, not enough. I walked away and the judge goes, uh, can I talk to you for a second, young man? <laughs> I remember him like, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> this is, a, and I said, it's just not enough. And so I went back up. I, I went back up to my room. We were in this hotel, and and uh, where the mediation was. Went up to my room, packed my stuff. Was coming down the elevator, and the door. I didn't push the button. I pushed the button for the first floor, but the door opened on the second floor, and the second floor was where all the defense lawyers were and all the insurance people were in a big conference room, and it also happened to be where the bar was for the restaurant. So I looked at it as Providence. I must, must, this door must be opening for a reason. So I, <laughs> a door opens. <laughs> I walked out the door and I walked over to where the defense lawyers were. The door was closed. You could hear people yelling and talking inside. And I knocked on the door and I'm like, who is it? I go, it's Bill Marler. What the do you want? And I'm like, so I opened the door, walked in, and I said, hey, look, you guys, no problem. No, I know we didn't get this done, but I'll, I'll be happy to host you guys for drinks next door. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. of course, the drinks, and it was like 7 o'clock at night. So we all go to the bar. We're drinking, having a couple of, you know, cocktails. And, you know, people start getting loose. They start like, you know, you're a greedy ambulance chasing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm just being nice and trying to do this thing. My cell phone rings, and I thought it was my wife. And I said, "Hi, honey." And it was like the judge from <laughs> from, from the airplane. From the airplane. Remember back when there were phones on airplanes? Oh yes. And so he was on the airplane, and he was like, 
I have another, I have more money for you, but I need to know that you will accept it and there is no more money. And he says, I have $15.6 million. I, I can't explain how I got to that number, but that's what I've got. I want to know if you'll accept it. I absolutely urge you to do so. Take it. And I said, okay, Your Honor, I'll agree to that. And uh, he said, but you can't tell anybody until tomorrow morning. You can't mention <laughs> it. And I'm like, okay. So I hung up. And of course, the people are yelling, you greedy bastard, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you guys want another round? There's another round. <laughs> it's on me. <laughs> so I tell that story because there was a level of elation that essentially, you know, two and a half years of working every day. I mean, not just Monday through Friday, but every day, seldom taking any time off, you know, working night and day on this case, uh, you know, paid off for the Kiner family. There was just like a sense that I now had was going to be able to take care of this kid for the rest of her life, regardless of what happened. And, you know, there was just a huge sense of pride. And, yeah. Well, yeah, it was more than just know, a win. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would imagine. I mean, I'm speaking like I'm you. <laughs> it was more than just a win, you know? Yeah. I just remember Coming home to my wife and I lived in this little 500 square foot summer beach cabin. It was it was a really nice little place, but it was really small. And I remember coming home that night and talking to my wife about, you know, the case was over and we were going to be able to take care of the kinder kid and put the money in trust for her. And it's been great for her for the rest of her life. And it's a real proud thing. I also, you know, frankly thought that that may well be the, you know, the largest case I've ever done at the time. And unfortunately, that's not been the case. There have been much larger cases, much more significantly injured children. It's been somewhat of an unfortunate disaster over the course of my career. Wow. What a, what a fascinating quote. An unfortunate disaster for the rest of my career. Right. Because I mean, it's it's economically been very successful, but in terms of consumers, been an unfortunate disaster. Wow. Yeah. Well, and the trajectory that that put you on for the rest of your life is incredible. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, that I, maybe that's a good dovetail to talk about the movie. Um, you know, I got approached, it was just before the pandemic hit, the writer of Poison, Jeff Benedict, approached me and said, hey, there's a production company that's got money from Netflix. They want to do a documentary about this movie. And there had been some discussions years ago uh, about actually making the book Poisoned into uh, a feature film. And there was, you know, I actually had gone to Hollywood and met some producers and that never panned out. And so I was like a little skeptical about the documentary, but we started filming it during the pandemic. And what I was really, what I think, people in the food safety world will appreciate that, is it's not just about Jack in the Box. It's really sort of the, the Jack in the Box starts it and it kind of goes to the present. And what's great is there's not just me yakking away. They have a bunch of video of me when I was like a very young lawyer. So it's a little shocking uh, to the system. But, you know, Darren Detweiler's in it, Marion Nessel, Mike Taylor, Frank Giannis, 
you know, people in the industry, people in government. Uh, Barack Obama makes a, a cameo appearance. And oh, wow. so, you know, it's a, it, I think it's, it is a uh, cautionary tale about problems. But I think one of the good things at the end is, is that there's a, it, it shows some of the work, not only that I've been doing, but Consumer Reports and Center for Science, the Public Interest and STOP and, you know, the work that's been done in Congress. And, you know, and then essentially a call to action at the end that, you know, consumers can have power to push industry and government to do the right thing. So I'm hopeful that uh, the movie will have an impact. But I guess we'll see. What is the exact date that it comes out? I wish I could tell you that, but I uh, Netflix is an odd organization. They keep those kinds of things very close to their chest. It did run at uh, the Tribeca Film Festival. And in fact, I think it's one more showing tomorrow in the afternoon. And that's that's it. Then there's a showing in uh, Connecticut at the hometown of, of Jeff Benedict. And there it'll also be shown here on the island I live off, uh, off the coast of Seattle, Bainbridge Island. We're showing it at our one and only little theater, seats 250 people. But we're going to have our own little mini premiere, and it's going to be a fundraiser for our food bank. And then I hope that sometime in July, it starts streaming on Netflix. Nice. I can't wait to see it. I'm excited about it. Hey, if you guys want to fly to Seattle for July 2nd, you know, I'll get you tickets. I know, I know somebody. Who knows? Somebody. Yeah, I, well, I would, I would love to see it if I can. July second, so, <laughs> I'll have to see if I can make there. Matt's on vacation, but I would love, I would love to be there. I know there's a bunch of people from uh, from iFood DS and New Air Partners that are that are going to be there. So yeah, unfortunately, I can't do it. I'm literally driving across country with ten kids. So. Well, yeah, you'd take up half the half the space with your family. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What a fun road trip that's going to be. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, is there anything else you would like to add? I, we've definitely gone over. But. No, I appreciate the, that you guys invited me. It's it's an honor to spend time with you. You know, if there's anything I can ever do for you, uh, you know, please let me know. And, you know, happy to help in any way. To, or vice you know, versa, if all of a sudden you have a new merch shop that you want to... Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or anything that you want to that you're promoting or whatever just let us know we'd love to have you on yeah thank you so much i really appreciate your time thank you thanks